0: Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on May 23rd, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... But calculus just says
1: we're going to imagine we can cut space and time and anything else as finely as we want all the way to infinitesimal size. And although we don't believe it's true in the sense of physics, it does give fantastically good approximations to things that we see about curved shapes and about motion in the world and about all kinds of change.
0: That's Steven Strogatz. He's a professor of applied mathematics at Cornell University. His last book in 2012 was The Joy of X, and his new book is Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe. Now, if the mention of the word calculus sent chills of horror up your spine, please don't leave. This discussion is really for you as much as for anyone who loved taking their calculus course. I spoke to Strogatz in a Manhattan apartment when he visited from upstate a few weeks ago. So as always, also enjoy the occasional sound of first responders' vehicles going about their business in our ultra-exciting metropolis. People listening to us are playing an MP3. And in the book, you talk about MP3s exist because of calculus. Yeah. So that's one, just one of the, there's an infinitude, if you will, of practical examples of what calculus has gotten us. So, you know, just real quick, how did it, how did calculus lead to an MP3?
1: Well, the thing is that we've got all this data, you know, that if you, if the, uh, if you tried to play every note and every little fraction of the the sound that you've recorded when you record digital music, it's those files are going to be way too big. So there's a a trick uh, somehow of compressing them. That's what MP3 is all about data compression, and so. Just like JPEG for images, MP3 for music, you have to somehow eliminate the redundant information so that all that's left is the part that you want to listen to. And and figuring out the optimal way to do that is where calculus can come in, because one of the great things that calculus can do is find optimal solutions to problems, the best or most efficient or cheapest. Um, And so in essence, what's going on is we're fitting some kind of structure or smooth curve or something through the data and then throwing out the parts that we we don't need to be listening to. It's just a much more reduced, compressed form of information.
0: Right. And therefore, you're taking up with with this podcast, oh, maybe 30 megabytes, maybe, whereas uh, if it was not compressed, it would be maybe 600 megabytes.
1: Mm -hmm. It's something we all have intuition for now because, you know, on your computer, you often have a choice of saving something at low res or medium or best. You know, like when we send pictures to our friends over email. Um, So I think we all now kind of have a feeling of what it looks like. And it's interesting that part of what's going on is also human perceptual limitations, that it's not, this is not just about the math. This is also about the psychology and psychophysics of human ability to perceive differences in sounds or in uh, color levels or, you know, so it's, it's a really interesting, subtle problem that goes beyond math into psychology too.
0: Yeah, um, but before we get to any of that, uh, let's let's start at the beginning. What is calculus? And I'm just about old enough to remember. It being referred sometimes to the calculus, mm. and you talk about that in just a what like one paragraph in the book about how it's now just calculus uh-huh. versus the calculus.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. The name so it began as the calculus. Um, Leibniz is the person, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, late 1600s, often considered one of the co-inventors of calculus with I- Isaac Newton, and he referred to it at first as my calculus my method of calculating answers to certain very challenging, at the time, almost impossible problems. So they went from my calculus to the calculus that I use to eventually now we just drop all of that and it's just calculus. But anyway, as far as what is it, um, gee, there's so many different ways to say what it is. It's, It's a branch of math that's concerned with change. I would say that's the fundamental point that you know, you, you think about geometry, the triangles on the page or the squares or the circles, they're not moving around, they're not expanding and contracting. They're static objects. And in calculus, we're interested in motion and change, especially continuous change, not jerky, jumpy change, but smooth or continuous change, and how to describe it. So that that's a kind of disembodied way of describing what calculus is. That's mostly what it's concerned with, is change. But um, who cares about change? Well You know, change is what what makes the world go around. Change is is the real great mystery of our existence that, of course, there's that old adage that nothing is constant except change. And so that's the kind of a big fact about the world that it rains one day, it's sunny the next day, the stock market goes up and down.
0: If you get a speeding ticket, you are concerned about change.
1: Your change, you mean because of your change in your bank account? Or your well, change- I was thinking
0: you, you, you have uh, violated a a limit of the change in position versus the change in time. Well, that's right.
1: Right, so speed is an example of the kind of change I'm talking about. The rate of change of your position with respect to time is what we call speed. And so, sure, we could talk about speed, velocity, acceleration. Those are all physics concepts of change. We could also be talking about the change in a viral population in a person with HIV. Um, You know, if we look in their bloodstream and measure their so-called viral load or the T cell count to see about their immune cells. So there's all kinds of things changing, as well as oscillating electric fields and magnetic fields that give rise to um, propagation of electromagnetic waves that we're taking advantage of every time we use wireless communication.
0: I took calculus a long, long time ago. And uh, as soon as I saw the the word calculus on the cover of the book, I quizzed myself. What did I remember about calculus? And the first thing that came to mind was the area under the curve. Mm -hmm. So why was that in my head?
1: That is the hardest part of the calculus course that people take first. So, right, we do two main parts of calculus in the first course. There's derivatives and integrals. That's the jargon. So students remember derivative as the slope of the curve and the integral as the area under the curve. And it raises the question, why are we spending so much time on curves and areas and slopes of curves? And it's because curves give us a universal language for describing change. We're we're so used to drawing graphs now of... um, you know, some variable y as a function of x, or a position as a function of time, and we draw this as a as a picture. We draw an axis, you know, the horizontal axis for x or for time, a vertical axis for whatever position or something else that's changing as a function of x or time, and um,
0: and that's a Cartesian plane. That'd be the Cartesian plane. And right. in the book, you talk about you know, Descartes <laughs> and Fermat, yes, and they're they're kind of spat, and really when when we're on a Cartesian plane, it's really more of what Fermat came up
1: with it is really yeah it's a it's an interesting quirk of history that that Fermat is the the greater mathematician I mean they're both very good, but um analytic geometry, which is really the part of math that deals with this XY plane is is Fermat's creation as much as Descartes and maybe more
0: so uh, I'm pronouncing it wrong it's Fermat. Uh, the French would say Fermat, okay. yeah. Right, I said Descartes, so I should Descartes say is good. Me, instead yeah. of Descartes. So uh, anyway, back to the area under the curve, that's the the harder part. Well, it is
1: harder, yeah. I mean, so finding the slope involves this operation called the derivative, and pretty much every kid who takes calculus, and by the way, there's about a million students in America each year taking calculus. It's a big, big enterprise. Everybody can do derivatives. That's not hard. It's very mechanical, very um, routine. You just have to memorize a few formulas and not make mistakes, and you can do it. But doing integrals, which amounts to doing the opposite of derivatives, finding um, antiderivatives in the jargon, that's, that turns out to require much more ingenuity. So yeah, it's harder. You probably remember it because you spent weeks and weeks on it. You learn things called trig substitutions, partial fractions, algebraic substitutions. And maybe this is the point to jump off to say that, you know, so many people have this experience of calculus as this endless series of procedures and tricks, and they don't really know what, why am I doing all this? What do I need the area under a curve for? So that's what I'm trying to do in Infinite Powers is explain For instance, the area under a curve, if it's concentration of a drug, um, a medicinal drug in your bloodstream, that uh, area under the curve is a measure of how toxic... You know, you're looking at the total impact of that drug when you look at the area under the curve. And so when uh, pharmacologists need to figure out toxicity levels, they're interested in the area under a curve when they're measuring concentration of this drug in the bloodstream. Or if you were... um, you know thinking about your bank account the area under a curve if, of uh daily balance versus time that that would tell you something about your accumulated wealth so that's
0: the thing area under a curve has to do with accumulation right because if you're let's talk about the drug example and toxicity you're you have to take into account how long the drug is going to be in your bloodstream right so that's why that area under a curve is such an important factor versus just the initial Dosage.
1: That's right. So the concentration is important, but knowing the concentration for how much time is really what counts, and so right. that ends up being an area.
0: Yeah, and you'll always see the half life of a, a drug if you look at the mm-hmm. the uh, tiny little, incredibly folded information <laughs> that comes with drugs, uh-huh. and so that that'll tell you. I mean, you can you can pretty much do a back-of-the-envelope calculation on how long you're going to have a significant amount of that stuff still in your system. Right, right. Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. So it's very important for understanding chemotherapy and, and lots of other real-world applications. Um, and so what's... I mean, that's, I guess, the point about the area under a curve, that it's, this, it's like a standard currency. You can compute problems, whether it's about pharmacology or finance or motion of planets or whatever it happens to be. You put it all into this universal framework of, of curves and their areas and their slopes. And now you're talking about the two main types of change that can occur that answer questions like how fast or how much. Okay, so the how much questions, that's about integrals, that's accumulation. How fast, that's about rate of change, that's about velocity, or if it's economics, it's about marginal return or something like that. People who
0: never took calculus, I want to comfort them mm-hmm. and let them know that they can still really enjoy this book. Um, the examples are accessible, even if you never took calculus. If you took calculus, you're going to have a big advantage because you can look at the examples and they're familiar. If you never took calculus, you, you can get through them if you feel like putting in the work. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't want to put in the work, there's so much interesting history in the book that I think it's it's still a, a really terrific read. And one of the things you do historically is take away the notion that calculus just came into the minds of Newton and Leibniz, and from then on we had calculus. <laughs> you put it, you put it on fittingly a continuum,
1: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> uh, going all the way back to Archimedes and even before. But Archimedes gets a lot of credit in your book. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I'm glad that you see it that way, because I I do think it's often told as Newton and Leibniz, and then, you know, voila, we have calculus. And it's really far from the truth. I do want to show it as a collective achievement of humanity, which is how I see it. It's something that's taken about 2,000 or 2,500 years, depending how you count it, for us to solve these three great mysteries of, of dealing with curves and describing them understanding riddles about motion and change. And I mean, those are taking those as two different problems. Motion as one kind of change, change of position, and more general kinds of change. So those three great mysteries we've been after for, you know, like I say, more than 2,000 years. And I see Archimedes as, as great as any of the geniuses in the whole story. I really think he's incredibly deep and also poignant. I find him very poignant character because he's so far ahead of his time that, um,
0: as you say in the book, was there ever anyone more ahead of his time than Archimedes? I don't
1: see how there could be. I mean, he really has all the ideas of calculus, but he's playing with both arms behind his back because he doesn't even have decimals, yeah, you know, think of what Roman numerals would be like if you had to do some complicated arithmetic problem. He's not using Roman numerals, but a Greek version of the yeah. same idea so so decimals you know that has to wait for like almost a millennium to get invented in India. And then eventually make its way to Europe in the Middle Ages. So he doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have algebra because that's only going to be invented in the Middle East, you know, in its form that we recognize today. Um, actually, the, the version of algebra you see in like Baghdad in 800 A.D. even that doesn't look like our algebra because it's still all with words and sentences instead of x and y. The mm-hmm. x and y is only that only comes in in Italy, like in 13 or 1400.
0: Yeah, remember those word problems about if you're on a train to Chicago moving at 78 miles an hour and you're on the train for an hour and a half, you know, did you bring your lunch with you? <laughs> so the, the uh all of math was like that. Uh-huh. For it was a while. all word problems. That's right. right. It
1: was nothing but word problems in the old days, except for geometry, mm-hmm. which was um for the Greeks the sort of ultimate standard in reasoning and um Careful arguments and all that, and then, you know, but it's not like it all began with the Greeks. We have people in Mesopotamia and um, you know the Sumerians, ancient. That's why I say in Baghdad, and and uh, they created a lot of the ideas that then ultimately helped set the stage for Archimedes. So I do want people to see this as a story of the world's accomplishment, and actually both halves of the world, men and women. There are m- women in the story, um, at least four of them. I tell about their contributions: Mary Cartwright. Uh, in England, who helped with radar, and um, you Sophie. know helped helped in the Battle of Britain
0: mm-hmm. um, have in two, World, we World we have War Two. Sophie and Sophia.
1: Well, yeah. So there's mm-hmm. Sophie Germain, a, a young French mathematician um, who is key in the development of our understanding of waves and elastic materials, and then Sophia Kovalevskia in Russia, who who did fantastic work on the limits of what calculus could explain in in certain kinds of equations that we. Called differential equations, and um, someone that a lot of your listeners will know, Catherine Johnson from the movie and the book Hidden Figures, who's still alive. Yeah. So and you know who brought um, Alan Shepard and John Glenn safely back into
0: the Earth um, into re-entry. Right. The famous story: John Glenn wasn't coming back until she checked. He, the... Uh, he
1: trusted her with his life. Yeah. Yeah. So there, and there are many, many more that we could talk about. But anyway, it is a story of of the world's contributions to this fantastic body of knowledge for thinking about change. And so I did, you know, we've already hinted at it, but I wanted to clarify, it's not just math talking to itself. This gave us microwave ovens. It gave us radar and television and CAT scans for people with, you know, possibly with blood clots or brain tumors. Mm -hmm. We could go on and on. And I I try to explain all, you know, that the calculus was a a key enabler in all of these things. It, It didn't do any of it by itself. I mean, you need technology, you need science, but But there was calculus helping with all of these things.
0: Um, You talked about the microwave. There's an experiment you can do at home with grated cheese Mm -hmm. and a flat plate, and you can compute the speed of light. Yeah,
1: you can. If you want to do this, you can, like you say, you could lay out a a plate of um, grated cheese or anything else that will melt nicely and that can lay flat. Some people like to use chocolate. So, yeah, you put it in your microwave. There will be a little... uh, Probably a panel on the microwave that tells you what frequency the microwaves are, and then when you oh, it's important to take out the rotating plate. You don't right. want the turntable in there. So you're going to put the this plate of say melted or grated cheese in there, and then as you know, there are going to be hot spots and and less hot spots in the microwave. So you'll see, uh, I think thirty seconds will probably be enough. You'll see really scorched melted places. Those are the hot spots, and there will be a certain distance between neighboring hotspots, and that will give you, uh, it will reflect the wavelength of the microwaves. Now, it's not exactly a whole wavelength. It's going to be the distance from one hotspot to the next, which if you picture a wave that goes up and comes down and then goes back up like a sine wave, both the trough and the crest of that wave, they're both hotspots because they're maximum amplitude excursion of the wave. So that distance will be half the wavelength. And anyway, if you multiply the um, you figure out what the wavelength is, you have to double that distance, multiply it by the frequency, and um, that'll give you the speed of light. And it comes out really well, actually. <laughs> it
0: works to within a few percent. There's, it, it just made me think of how much is always going on around us that we're not really paying attention to, and then all of a sudden maybe it reveals itself. Just this morning, uh, somebody was trying to optimize how they could pack things in the trunk of their car. And I was like, well, that's a packing problem. Mm-hmm. I was just reading about that <laughs> yesterday. And somebody else was, again, this morning was talking about uh, following surgery, was talking about the issue of walking down the stairs and the, the force on the surgically repaired hip. And I was thinking, well, that's, that's F equal MA. That's the second derivative. That's also in the, mm-hmm. in the book. And we're talking about how if she lost five pounds, it would what the effect would be oh. on the force that she has to deal with. Yeah, so it's it's. A- It's all, And if I hadn't been reading the book, I wouldn't have thought in those terms. But because I was reading the book, all of a sudden those were like, oh, these are examples in the book. (laughs) Well, Mm
1: -hmm. it's an interesting thing that the more science we know, um, the more ways we have of looking at the world. And not just science. I mean, I'm sure there are artists who look at the world and see design everywhere, you know, or architects. And you could think about all these questions from an architecture point of view. Well, likewise, you can from a calculus perspective. And once you know how to see the world through that lens, you will start seeing it everywhere. So um, I'm trying to help people see it that way, at least for the course of reading this book.
0: So one of the key things, if not the key thing, was the willingness for practitioners of calculus uh, or pre-calculus to think in terms of infinitesimally small slices Mm -hmm. or an infinite number of something, including the infinitesimally small slices, and for some mathematicians that was hideous. Mm, true. <laughs> so, and that's one of the things that Newton and Leibniz changed was they said, "I don't care if it's um, aesthetically unpleasing to you; the answers it gives are always right." Well, it, yes, it's it's complicated. I mean, Leibniz
1: had that very practical attitude that you're describing. I mean, he was interested in the philosophical side of things. He he was an incredible genius who was a linguist, a philosopher, a diplomat, and on the side he decided to become one of the best mathematicians in the world. On the side,
0: it's <laughs> unbelievable.
1: No, yeah. he's really one of the greats yeah. and um, a character too. A good writer. He seems like he's someone you'd like to hang around with, from what I can tell. He seems like he was a fun had a good sense of humor, contrasting with Newton, who I think you wouldn't want to spend any time with. Yeah. He's a really difficult, secretive, paranoid person. But, you know, we could talk about why, like everybody, he has a hard childhood. Yeah. Okay, but, but leaving Newton aside for a minute. So, yeah, the use of infinity, the strategic use of infinity to solve hard problems, um, and with this amazing construct of infinitesimals, which is itself a, this paradoxical idea of something that's smaller than anything you can imagine, but it's not nothing— um, you know, in physics, we don't believe in such things. There is no, we, we think there's a smallest, well, you used to call them atoms. Now we think there are subatomic particles. Obviously there are, and there's still debates about what's the smallest physical thing. Is it, you know, a super string or, a, and can space be chopped arbitrarily? Finally, is there a smallest scale at which space is kind of granular and mm-hmm. can't be? So anyway, these are deep issues in physics to worry about that people studying quantum gravity are worrying about. But calculus just says, uh, this is in our imagination. We're going to imagine we can cut space and time and anything else as finely as we want all the way to infinitesimal size. And although we don't believe it's true, In the sense of physics, it does give fantastically good approximations to things that we see about curved shapes and about motion in the world and about all kinds of change. So Leibniz had this attitude that these are useful fictions. He thought of his infinitesimals as what he called fictions of the mind. And he said, I don't worry about whether they're real or not. They're bookkeeping devices for me. They enable me to do calculations and free my mind for more creative thought. (laughs) whereas Newton was more concerned about the rigorous uh, mathematical issue of are there really infinitesimals or not And, and eventually Newton didn't use infinitesimals he started by using them but because he was very concerned with convincing people about his great book the Principia that he had figured out the system of the world he wanted it to be as unassailable as possible and so he ended up using a ratio of infinitesimals, a tiny change divided by another tiny change. And that thing is finite. That's not infinitesimal. A Mm -hmm. ratio of two infinitesimals, if done right. This is like when we take calculus today. We talk about delta y over delta x. Mm -hmm. As delta x goes to zero, that ratio can stay finite. It's not infinitesimal, even though it's a ratio of infinitesimals. And so Newton did things that way later in his career. Um, and it's today the concept we call the derivative. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas Leibniz worked with the differential, which gives us the word differential calculus. The differential is the little dy, the infinitesimal thing, or the dx.
0: So it's another kind of irony. It, we always think, probably uh, outside of Germany anyway, we think Newton first for calculus. And the calculus that we do is really the Leibniz version that's true, yeah,
1: it is all of that is true. Newton is definitely before Leibniz. He's about 10 years ahead but but it's complicated because he doesn't publish. He's so secretive and um, Leibniz not only does publish but he also has this whole army of followers and disciples and they uh, promote his ideas, which are very elegant and that that's what really catches on. And it's only now that we have Newton's manuscripts, uh, many of which, thousands of pages of which were never published, that we can see just how far ahead Newton really was. And I, I think, I mean, from my reading of this, Newton is in a whole different league mm-hmm. as a mathematician. Leibniz is very good. He's one of the best in the world. But Newton is one of the best of all time. And, you know, yeah. who, who could match him? I think Archimedes is in the same league. There is another guy I wish I had time and space to write about in the book named Euler, oh, yeah. um, who I think is comparable. Yeah. But there are only three or four, you know, you, some mathematicians would say Gauss, maybe Riemann. Yeah. So Leibniz is definitely not first string. He's in my head. He's he's on the second team, but he's you know he's, second team it's a sec- a second <laughs> all. It's second. That's the second team of all time. All world. Yeah. Yeah. He's
0: all world. <laughs> um, you don't get to Riemann until page 290.
1: Well, Riemann doesn't make any <laughs> yeah. real
0: appearance. Yeah. I know,
1: Riemann is fantastic. Yeah. This is one of the heartbreaks of writing yeah. a book. You want to keep going, but there are deadlines... And um, there's exhaustion, and there's a family saying, sure. stop yeah. writing that book. <laughs> you know, like in calculus, we have this idea of approaching a limit where you keep getting halfway there and Your halfway family. there. Yeah, that's what it felt like in my house. I was getting always getting a little closer but never getting there, and that's not acceptable in right. real life. It's Strogatz
0: paradox. <laughs>
1: you have to get there and stop at some point.
0: I just remember Riemann sums from yep. Introduction to Calculus as the, the tiny distances. Well, Riemann
1: sums are the the modern way, I mean, one of the modern ways of making sense of the integral. And um, in an ideal world, I would have spent more time on them because the story of Riemann is very dramatic. He's a very smart, wonderful guy, dies young, 40 years old, gave us so much that that changed the way we think about everything. But um, I I don't know what to tell you. I feel bad. I wish I had...
0: It's a finite book. It's a finite book. (laughs) Um, My favorite topic as listeners, longtime listeners probably have figured out is evolutionary biology. Uh And you refer to the invention of calculus as the Cambrian explosion of math. So I thought that was worth unpacking a bit.
1: Well, so the Cambrian explosion, as it's usually defined, has to do with this pivotal event in the history of biological evolution, where for, I don't know, something like three and a half billion years, the Earth is dominated by single-celled organisms. Um, something like the bacteria of today, maybe like the archaea. So so very simple microbes. Uh, but they're alive. And they're doing very well, thank you very much, for three and a half billion years. And then something happens. Somehow life starts to become multicellular. And this transition to giving rise to modern-day multicellular organisms is is the Cambrian explosion where you suddenly start to see all kinds of life forms, some of which even can fossilize, you know, and we see life exploring every possible niche and every possible morphology. And it's, it's like the world suddenly really comes alive in this visible way. And it happens very quickly in a matter of just a few million years, which is like a blink in mm-hmm. in evolutionary time. So calculus is a similar thing in the history of math that you have these primordial life forms in math, which are kind of like numbers and shapes and simple word problems. And then it's like that for a long time. But then when calculus and the the math of change comes on the scene and algebra meets geometry in analytic geometry, that sets the stage for this explosion of calculus. And ever since then, we have all these modern life forms, which have calculus names in them, like analytic geometry is... First one, but but there's analytic number theory where we apply calculus to the theory of prime numbers and other numbers, or um, differential geometry where we use calculus to analyze smooth surfaces and even higher dimensional things that we can't visualize that later play a role in Einstein's general relativity theory of gravity and you know the cosmos as a whole. So anyway, um, modern math begins with calculus, and then it's been 350 years of exploring. Its implications. So that's why calculus is the first course you take in college. It's not the pinnacle. It's the beginning of the Cambrian explosion of math.
0: Yeah, you talk in the book about you take calculus one, two, maybe you take calculus three, and then there are other math courses. You can take differential equations, but if they were being labeled sort of more conventionally, you'd be taking calculus four and calculus five, (laughs) six, and I think you go to, I think you say calculus 38. Well, something, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, with all due respect to the algebraic people out there, I mean, it is true that that some of these subjects are not offshoots of calculus. So there is an algebraic stream that comes out of a different tradition in math about solving equations and dealing with numbers and their generalization. So that, I guess, is not so much the child of calculus, but there is a lot of calculus-based math the ones you mentioned, complex analysis, ordinary and partial differential equations, Fourier analysis, you know, differential topology, differential geometry. So we could definitely go, yeah, you, I mean, they're all, if you don't know calculus, you can't do, I'd say, eight or nine-tenths of the whole curriculum. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and uh, if I remember right, if you do matrix algebra, you can get the same results with certain... Partial Mm, differential equations, yeah.
1: Right, you're revealing your chemistry background there. Because in the beginnings of quantum mechanics in the 1920s, um, Heisenberg had a way of doing it with matrices, which were fairly newfangled objects at the time. So he had his so-called matrix mechanics for figuring out energy levels in atoms. And then Schrodinger had a different way with wave mechanics using partial differential equations, his so-called Schrodinger equation. And they kept getting the same answers. Yeah. And it turned out they were the same theory written two different ways.
0: Yeah. So that's why we have the Schrodinger equation and not a Heisenberg, whatever you'd call it. Well, there, um, there are... there are yeah,
1: yeah, matrix mechanics is is a little... Because it's, it depends where you come from. But if you're used to a calculus tradition, Schrodinger's theory looks very natural. Yeah. But for the people who are more algebraic, there are still matrix mechanics out there. But, but they've all been, you know absorbed into one big quantum theory. And you want to understand all these different points of view. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say to... Well, yeah, I wanted to go back to something that you brought up. So people tend to think of calculus as this very difficult part of math. And it it certainly is for many high school and college students who are taking it. A lot of people have bad memories of their calculus course. Um, There are also people who never took calculus because they were scared of it or thought it was going to be terrifying or above them in some way. Those are the readers I have in mind. I mean, I'm not writing it for other mathematicians. I think other mathematicians, I hope, will get something out of the history or maybe some surprising applications that they weren't aware of. But for everybody else, the person who's just a generally curious person who's heard of calculus their whole life and doesn't really know what it is or why it matters, I'm talking to you. You know, that's who I'm really writing for. And so I'm, I'm intending it as an act of uh, friendship. Like I want to share this, what I think of as really a beautiful set of ideas. It's it's human creativity of the highest caliber along with the music and the poetry that, that people have created. It's also fun. There are a lot of funny stories. There are wonderful conflicts, bitter rivalries. It's very dramatic. So I, I think if you don't know this story of calculus and what it's done for the world, you're missing one of the great human sagas right there with the story of evolution or relativity or quantum theory or ideas about justice and democracy. I mean, it's one of the world-changing sets of ideas. So I think anybody really ought to know about it. And I'm trying to make it as much fun and um, as easy a ride as possible.
0: And if you read the book, you'll hear about how these scientific and mathematical thoughts influenced the way Jefferson Mm -hmm. wrote the beginning of the Declaration of Independence.
1: Absolutely true. Right. I mean, Jefferson is um, is a product of his time. I mean, the beginning of the Enlightenment is is a direct result of Isaac Newton showing that the world is not just higgledy-piggledy, haphazard, random goings on. That that if you know the the laws of nature, and those laws do exist, with calculus you can make predictions. You can see into the future. I mean, in his case, it meant you could see where. Halley's comet is going to be 50 years from now, you can predict the tides, you can understand what the moon is going to do, you can think about a ball flying through the air and how high it's going to go or how long till it hits the ground. I mean, millions of things can be explained with Newton's laws and, and his law of gravity. But that idea that nature is predictable, and not just one crazy thing after another, which people more or less thought forever... That's a change in how we look at the world and how we live in the world. And it gives people like Jefferson the idea that even in the sphere of human life and, and government, that there are laws. So when he begins the Declaration of Independence in the famous preamble, he he talks about we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and so on. And And so the language is very careful there. When he says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that's the same language that Euclid uses at the beginning of Euclid's Elements, the the textbook on geometry from 300 BC. The self-evident truths refer to the axioms of geometry that you cannot question, and then you build the theorems from logic, starting with those axioms. Newton does the same thing in his Principia, except for him, the axioms are things like laws of motion and, and gravity. And... Uh, He then derives consequences from those using logic, and they predict what's happening in the world, not just in his mind. So Jefferson's trying to mimic that age-old tradition of you start with the self-evident truth, and then you have inescapable conclusions, which in his case was that we have the right, we the colonies have the right to sever ourselves from this tyrant in England. And we know it's really true because Newton... And and um, Euclid were great heroes of Jefferson. I'm not making this stuff yeah. up. You can see Jefferson's own writings to his friend to, in his letters to John Adams. After they're both no longer president, he says, um, you know, they're like two old men looking back on their lives. But he says, I've um, I've given up newspapers for uh, I think he says, who is it? Herodotus and Thucydides, yeah, Thucydides, Newton and yeah. Euclid. You know, Newton and Euclid. That is, he's thinking about these timeless historians and scientists and mathematicians. He says, I've given up newspapers for these guys, and I find myself
0: much the happier. And I think that's good advice for everybody today. (laughs) Don't read the newspaper so much. Read stuff that's been around for at least a few hundred
1: years, maybe. Well, yeah, maybe so. These are timeless pleasures and uh, insights that
0: really won't
1: change with the news cycle.
0: That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can watch a short video of highlights from an hour-long panel in April at the National Academy of Sciences that featured 10 Nobel and Cavali laureates in a variety of fields. You can find it in our blogs section. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.